Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Natalie Bupeau, a filmmaker whose 2020 documentary The Walrus and the Whistleblower, about the efforts of activist Phil Demers to free a captive mammal at a Niagara Marine Park, won the Audience Award at Hot Docs that year. Her latest project, a miniseries called The Unsolved Murder of Beverly Lynn Smith, is now streaming on Prime Video, and you should check it out. Natalie picked Into the Wild, Sean Penn's 2007 adaptation of John Krakauer's book about the strange odyssey of Chris McCandless, a college graduate from suburban Virginia who upended his life in the summer of 1990 and, over the next couple of years, wandered around America, eventually making his way to Alaska, for reasons he never managed to articulate to anyone. In September of 1992, his decomposing body was found in an abandoned bus near the Stampede Trail. He was 24 years old. Penn's film casts Emile Hirsch as Chris McCandless, with Marcia Gay Harden, William Hurt, and Jenna Malone as his family, and Catherine Keener, Hal Holbrook, Kristen Stewart, Vince Vaughn, and Thur Lindhart as the people he meets along the way. It's an observational drama that doesn't try to understand Chris exactly. It just wants to follow along with him and be there with him at the end. There's a poetry to that. This is someone else's movie. Movies like Into the Wild for me are the reason why theaters were invented and why we need to keep them to stay alive and well as humans. <laughs> it's just good answer. Yeah, <laughs> it is just dripping with so much of the dirty, beautiful, pained and soaring human spirit. And for me, watching it for the first time in the theater gave me um, a deeper sense of that collective experience that's possible in a theater. Nicely put. Um, <laughs> I I saw it um, at a, I guess it was a TIFF screening, a festival, a preview screening. And the thing I can remember thinking was that the room, the audience wasn't big enough. Like it mm. felt like it should have had a, a, a full crowd. And I saw it with a handful of people as, as is how it works really in, in mm-hmm. um, press screenings. And I remember thinking that I had read the book. I'd read Krakauer's um, nonfiction novelization, really, right? Because it's somewhere between reportage and, and interpretation. And I remember thinking that Penn had found a way to do that, that worked, that actually mm-hmm. captured the thing that can't be, or rather not captured, but it acknowledged that there are choices that can't be explained, that we can never really know Christopher McCandless and that's hard, right? I mean, you think about movies like The Perfect Storm, which sort of do the same thing and try to dramatize a, a nonfiction narrative, and they just leave you with the time to think about how much of what you're seeing is pure fiction because they've had to invent it. Mm-hmm. And with this, there's the sense that there are, I mean, what, like a third of the film is material that we could not possibly be certain happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet it's consistent and believable in a way that like he finds an artistic platform for it. I, I'm, I'm reaching for big uh, lofty terms, but I don't know how you do that in a way that feels authentic and genuine, even though it sort of acknowledges that it's just an interpretation. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just, it's, it's the access to those universal truths where the details in some ways don't matter because they are, a reflection of the greater thing that's being told. And I, and I think throughout the film for me, I felt like I was accessing so many of those universal truths that are so neatly tied up 
and structured to, to build almost against each other and give each other power. Like all of, all of these various structural elements are wound so tightly and they build and, and collide into each other that you feel these truths and who he might have been, who he was, who you think he could be. And so you're, you're able in this wonderful way to access some truths about the character, but at the same time, reflect on who you are in relation to that character, you know? And for me, the film had, uh, it obviously, you know, created this lasting impression, but in my life, it's had this interesting trajectory because, I mean, I saw the film and I was pregnant with my first child and I didn't know that I was pregnant yet. And he turned out to be a boy. And I have been raising a boy now since that film came out and watched it some time ago, three, four months ago with that boy who had his own reaction to it. And now as a mother of a boy, as I'm watching that film, these truths you talk about in the spirit of, of Chris and the journey he was on and the spirit and journey of his parents, I'm seeing it differently now. And so that to me is an example of this wonderful portrait of a film because it actually evolves with the viewer. And if you watch it at different times in your life, it's going to mean something different. Yeah. I mean, all the best films have that life, right? They'll just keep turning prismatically towards us and and they don't change. It's just us, which I I find absolutely fascinating and mystical as far as art goes. Yes. Um, Yeah. And here, Watching it again this time, I, I realized that so much of the mystery of it is that it refuses to reveal itself. Like it just mm-hmm. pen pen won't let us understand. Mm-hmm. And and by keeping Chris's motivations at arm's length, mm-hmm. it makes us look more closely. So every repeat viewing, I've just I've scrutinized what Emil Hirsch is doing. I've, I've tried mm-hmm. to understand the meaning behind every gesture. And of course, like he's making stuff up too. There's, there's this weird transference that happens between the actor and the character, but also there's just bits of business that happened on the day when they shot clearly. I mean, just nods and gestures and things. And because he's such an enigma, because Chris McCandless is such an enigma, it's just this, it's like a challenge being presented to me. Can I understand it this time? And Mm -hmm. you you never will, but, but it pulls you closer every time. Uh, which I, I find absolutely fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, Emil Hirsch's performance, um, I think, I mean, is, is legendary there. And I think too, because of the, that little sparkle in his eye and the way he interprets and understood Chris in relationship to the viewer also has that enigmatic quality that changes. And so, you know, Penn's passion, you know, imbued in the film with Chris, with these other actors, these supporting role actors who play real people who loved this boy who is trying to reject them is just, it's, I don't know, for for me, it's sort of phenomenal how it all came together to create this mystical, impossible to define and grasp film that continues to evolve and and grow in its um, identity and experience. Um, I don't know. Did you love it when you first saw it? What was your first reaction to it? Um, I liked it a lot. I don't know that I loved it until the second viewing because Mm -hmm. it felt like there was a hole. And Mm -hmm. having read the book, again, I came in with expectations. Mm 
that were unfair maybe to the, to the way that Penn chooses to tell the story. And it wasn't until the DVD release and the HD DVD release that, uh, that I managed to take another look and think, Oh no, no, it's not about what I want. It's, uh, that's the point. Like he's not giving me an easy yeah. resolution. He's, yeah. he's not even going to go as deep into uh, McCandless as Krakauer did in the book because McCandless in the film, he just says he wants to go to Alaska. He has no larger, like, there's no greater agenda. The real McCandless had it, had left behind diaries and, and, and there's all sorts of, I mean, it's self mythologizing in some cases, nonsense. He, he clearly wasn't well, mm-hmm. but the version in the film is this pure spirit, like uh, an adventurer, like somebody who doesn't belong in the present day, someone who's out of place. I think the last time I watched it before this, I think I had, fairly recently seen Close Encounters and rewatched it. And that felt like a connection. Like what Richard Dreyfuss is doing as Roy in Close Encounters is playing somebody who needs this, but doesn't know why and can't Mm -hmm. understand it. Mm -hmm. And what, what Hirsch is doing as McCandless is this almost beatific serenity. Like he's certain that this is what he needs to the point where it's self-evident and he doesn't need to explain it to anyone else. And he just sort of shuts down any inquiry. This is the thing that has to happen, which is this, which becomes because of the trajectory of the film, it becomes this weird martyrdom track. I was just thinking that exact same word martyrdom. That's exactly right. All of those images with him, you know, lying flat on his back in the water, nude, you know, floating down and arms open and the swirling shots of him on top of mountains and, um, and his serene face for so much of the film. Um, and this quest that you're, you're willing him to stop, you know, and especially as the parents, the characters of the parents soften and you start to see them more as humans, you understand less and less why he's doing it. And yet you are with him more and more. And so I I think this less is more performance of his and also the screenplay worked um, in favor of that. You know, it actually, I think, I think had he tried to explain it better, it might have failed. Yeah, I agree. I I think if, you're going to tell this story this way. It has to be unknowable. He he has to be just outside of us. And and even the way that to to you know to leap ahead, his death is presented as a kind of rapture. Um, yes, it's yeah. very. I mean, it's it's such an intimate death. Uh, the way the film presents it, the way mm-hmm. Penn just pushes into it and it gets a little surrealistic, but impressionistic, but it's not, it's not too much somehow. Right. Like this Mm -hmm. is the, this is the climax. This is his destiny. This is where he was headed the whole time. Um, And we do have that moment where he tries to go back because he suddenly realizes that this isn't going to work, which is, which is in like, it's in Krakauer's book, the suggestion that he, he, you know, second guessed himself that he, that he reconsidered. But in the book, it's it's fatalistic in a way that kind of frames it as, well, what did he think was going to happen? And Penn is so much more sympathetic in that moment. Mm. Um, like he really didn't know what he was doing. He knew what he wanted, but he didn't know how to get it. Um, and in the end, the film, 
the film implies that he made peace with it, mm-hmm. um, which I think if you're going to make this movie, we need that as an audience. I mean, there is a different version of this film that is far less beautiful, right? Like there's the $5 million indie about someone who is going to die a terrible, lonely death. And, yeah. <laughs> and he just follows that trajectory all the way to it. And you don't have movie stars. You don't have, you know, the, these incredible helicopter shots and, and, and the lighting isn't quite perfect. And you come out angry mm-hmm. uh, because you've watched someone throw his life away. Well, and maybe this, like Grizzly Man. Well, like, I wonder, right? Like that was right yeah. around the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although what, what Herzog is doing is judging from the beginning, right? Because he's, he has his own voice as a documentarian. Penn is so much more sympathetic to this young man who did throw his life away, but clearly Penn doesn't think that was what his intentions were. I don't know that Penn knows what they were, but mm-hmm. I think I can just picture him reading the book and going, no, no, he didn't kill himself and making the movie as a result, almost as a, as an act of correction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, the way that plays out for me, I love, I love what you say about that because the way that rapture and those last moments and days and weeks play out is that he's actually closer to humans than he ever has possibly in his life. I mean, this is how I'm seeing it. He's literally enveloped by the objects that have been given to him by people on his journey. And the symbolism of the toque knitted by the replacement surrogate mother figure that he's met along the way is hanging just on the other side of the river that he now can't access and that he desperately wants to access again is, is deeply sympathetic, right? Because you're, you're just um, feeling the boy, you're feeling the mother's son with this rebellion that might is now more complicated than he thinks it was. And right. And so you, I think all of us can relate to that. Um, And then he comes back and, and in those last moments, he's wearing the coat that was given to him by the elderly man that he last had a relationship with, you know, and the belt that had been made there as well. And so he's, he's literally surrounded by the love of people he touched along his journey of rejection of society. Right. And so to me, those nuances Penn was able to access uh, in a way that I found very, um, uh, I I admired him for that actually as a filmmaker and as a budding filmmaker at the time, I really admired that ability to um, give me all of those nuances in ways that are almost difficult to explain um, and make me fall in love with a character who hurt a lot of people and who self-destructed. Yeah, it's an incredibly sympathetic portrait yeah. of, of someone who is like from the outside an incredibly unsympathetic person. Um, you know, like it's an anti-road movie in that every road movie prior is a film about the friends you make along the way. It's almost a cliche now. Mm-hmm. And he, yeah, he just rejects every overture, every chance that he has, he pushes away. And again, Hirsch makes it feel like a confident thing instead of a cruel thing. He's mm. like his scene with Hal Holbrook at the end when he leaves is just such a heartbreaker. <sighs> yeah. Especially because, you know, you, the, the film has, has given us a sense of its rhythm and we know this is his last stop. Yeah. Even if you've never seen yeah. the movie before, this is like, this is Penn telling us that this is his yeah. last chance. Yeah. And Holbrook is just so vulnerable and open in a way that 
I don't think I'd ever seen him before. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he'd been playing, you know, judges and presidents and grandfathers my entire life, as long as I was aware of him. Uh, he was this statesman. And Penn just casts him as someone who doesn't have that strength. Like, he doesn't have the resolve to hold this kid steady. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that it would have worked, but you can feel him blaming himself yeah. as, as McCandless leaves. And it's just, it's such a stunner. Um, yeah. And, and it's such a, a strange way to place that moment you know, to, to make this, once again, another failure uh, of, of society, of humanity to keep this kid in its, in its circle, in its, in its, um, in its fold. And we're sympathetic to, we feel for both of them because oh, we know what they're each losing. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and this, that moment where, you know, Hirsch long pause, right. Hirsch's long pause after the question is asked if he wants to be adopted and the, the basic, basic response of, can we talk about this when I'm back, Ron, is just, oh, <laughs> right? Like, and I, I, I don't know that I think the, the performance, the, the, the wetness of Hirsch's eyes that wasn't overdone um, matched with the vulnerability of Holbrook. Um, you're right. I mean, they created magic in that, in that truck. Yeah. And it's, again, it's something that shouldn't, well, not shouldn't work. It, it obviously does. Um, but if you're writing this, how do you, how do you know? It's the same kind of confidence. I think that McCandless has that they'll make it to Alaska and everything will be fine. It's that Penn in, in translating this novel to the screen just has to believe that he'll figure it out or he'll know how to do it. And there's no precedent for a story like this that I can see. Certainly not from Penn. And, and oh, absolutely not. No, for me, it was a real shocker. And but to to feel as if I mean, I felt structurally and from a screenplay point of view, like I was in very capable, guided hands. You know, like I, as a viewer, I just felt like I was being taken and and fed when I was meant to be fed and withheld, you know, food when that was the intention as well. And so that it, I just felt like I was um, trusted um, as a viewer and yet completely uh, given over to him and what it is he wanted for that journey at the same time. You know, I just, I just thought it was um, a work of great craftsmanship from someone I was surprised to see that from. Yeah. I mean, in retrospect, it does have a lot of the same DNA as, as Penn's first feature as a director, The Indian Runner, where you're watching a man come to terms with the fact that his brother is beyond salvation. Um, but because we sympathize with the brother who stays rather than the brother who leaves, um, David Morse rather than Viggo Mortensen, it the, the calculus is completely different. Mm-hmm. The emotional balance is, is so, so shifted in the favor. Like we are allowed to see Viggo Mortensen's character as flawed and and not necessarily beyond salvation, but self-destructive. We can understand why he does the things he does. Um, what Into the Wild does is shift the focus entirely onto the self-destructive character who has no self-knowledge, which is completely, radically different and, and just so strangely potent mm-hmm. as a narrative choice. I mean, we've we've seen movies and television shows decades worth of of narratives about, you know, what they call difficult men um, who are, who are, you know, openly, you know, like either anti-heroic or, or toxic heroes, people who don't understand the destruction they cause narcissists. This isn't that. And 
from, you know, I, there's really no way to ignore it. Uh, both Penn and Hirsch have been uh, toxic and difficult in their own ways, in their own careers, in their own lives. But there's something that just lines up here that maybe that's it. Maybe Penn is writing it from the inside out, but he just, he feels for Chris McCandless so fully that mm -hmm. he sort of wrestles the movie into something sad and true rather than, you know, frustrating and, and alienating. Mm -hmm. well, I just keep coming back to that point. It's, no, I, it's something I'm, I can't fully get. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, perhaps inside of every difficult man is a sympathetic portrait of those deep wounds and flaws. Right. And, and I, and I, I wonder if you're right, that Penn reflected on some of that from the inside out as Hirsch did, you know, and it's, um, I've always, it's always been attracted to those types of stories that portray men in these ways, you know, um, that actually demand um, us to look closely at men, you know, perhaps because I, I'm not one. And so I, you know, I, I, I have always been drawn to those kinds of stories and those kinds of character portrayals. And, um, but I, I, there is something, as you say, that's different um, in this and that, um, uh, that this young actor, I mean, how old was Hirsch when he did this? Like he must've been 21 or 22, maybe. Yeah, exactly. To be able to access some of this at that age is incredible. And to do it so quietly with so few words, you know? Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to tell you about the new shiny things newsletter, my weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and maybe the odd streaming show. This week, I wrote about Singing in the Rain, Beverly Hills Cop 2, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and two box sets of Claude Chabrol movies. You want to read that, right? Subscribe for the price of a latte at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Simcast Twitter account. It's me. I'm writing about movies again. Come check it out. His gait is a narrative a uh, tool at, at yes. one at various points in the film, like seeing how well he's moving or how hard he's struggling becomes a way of understanding what's going on inside his head because he's just giving nothing back. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I think about someone like, um, so like Michael Shannon, who is the go-to for me for someone who is incredibly empathetic, but able to shut himself off if he wants to as an actor and give nothing back. And there's even kind of a physical resemblance between the two of them. Now that I think about it. Yeah. Big foreheads and jaws. <laughs> and um, it's just, it's such a, it's such a weird skill because, you know, part of being an actor or a movie star is letting people see just enough of you that they want to keep coming back. Right. That's, that's what we've been led to believe. But in some cases you give them less and, and it turns into more somehow. Like just mm, the minimalism yeah, of his, yeah. his acting or his, his lack of effect. Yeah. You know, because there are other actors, dozens of other actors who would have gone bigger, who would have done something broader or even more comical or just like mm -hmm. self-parodic. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't know if it's that, um, that Penn wouldn't let him because Hirsch is capable of going big when he wants to, uh, or they just mutually decided that this is the way to go, but it, it works so well. Mm -hmm. And the editing helps too, I think, because where he is quiet um, in his performances, sometimes scenes are juxtaposed in a way that creates the bigness that might be required that mm -hmm. he isn't 
giving for whatever reason in the moment, you know, and the one that comes to mind is, is in fact, with Hal Holbrook again, towards the end, um, that moment of euphoria when they're sitting together after Hal has climbed the mountain and he says, if you learn to forgive, God's light will shine on you and the sun comes out and that's juxtaposed immediately with, and that, that euphoria is juxtaposed with the madness in the bus of him starving and he's swirling around and he's clearly spiraling and he knows it's the end. And it's right before the, you know, seminal moment where he eats the plant. So I think that, that cut, you know, like we've been brought to the very precipice of the beginning of his journey. And then we flash forward to the actual end of his journey. And those two scenes juxtaposed like that created this spark, this bigness, I think that was uh, perfect because the acting wasn't and didn't have to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much room for little stumbles of humanity throughout just, mm. you know, Kristen Stewart in any movie is going to any movie except the twilight films is going to give you a naturalistic turn yeah. uh, and find incredibly sympathetic moments. And I don't even mean to crap on the twilight movies. She knows exactly <laughs> what she's doing in those films. And it is a real performance. I, I've always yeah. <laughs> felt, I hate the movies, but it, like it's not the actor's fault. They're doing exactly yeah. what they can. Um, and then, yeah, and like Galifianakis and, and Vince Vaughn, people who are ordinarily comic engines, right? Like driving films are here to just sort of be for mm-hmm. 20 minutes or 15 minutes and then just drift away and never come back. It's, it's you know, it is an ensemble film, even though there's a lead mm-hmm. and a, everyone else has to hit those same notes in the same way. And they all have to be compassionate and sad they all have to be helpful or wanting to help and that's like that's my my hook for pen if i ever get to talk to him about it um this seems to be his thing like his personal idea of service he's the guy who jumps in the boat during katrina and goes and helps people he wanted to go to ukraine he 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 wants to be of service he wants to help people and yes i mean he brings cameras with him and there is an element of narcissism to that that sort of performance of heroism. But you step back another foot and he is actually doing the thing, right? Like yeah. even if we are what we yeah. pretend to be and all that, he is doing the things yeah. that help people. And every other character, everyone who isn't Chris McCandless in this movie is trying to understand him mm-hmm. and trying to figure out if there's a way to help him. And it's it just breaks your damn heart. Yeah. In the end. Like, and it really is so moving that none of this needs to happen yeah. except that Chris wants it to. Yeah. He doesn't know what he wants, but he wants this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh God. When you mentioned Vince's name, that moment in the bar when they're sitting across from each other and, you know, with similar minimalism, mm-hmm. Vince is just looking at him as he's talking and he cracks the odd joke, but for a lot of the time he's just looking at him and you're hearing him talk about rejecting society and parents and Vince is just absorbing and it's very quiet really there's it's punctuated by loud laughter every once in a while and it 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 sort of unwinds and it doesn't really go anywhere that conversation Mm -hmm. which is so perfect because that's how you would expect that conversation to end in real life um and so but there's this moment where he's just absorbing and you're absorbing sort of through him and then later he's gone, but he's played this key role in the journey of, of Chris, but also of, of the viewer and Catherine Keener, same thing, right? Yeah. With her. Yeah, no, it's, um, 
Yeah, it was extremely well cast. If you think about it, you know these uh, these these figures who were in some cases a little bit older, in some cases a lot older, providing wisdom, and yet they're restrained because they can't really access him and they can't really give him their wisdom. But he is collecting it quietly, also in the form of these symbols and these objects that he ends up dying with, you know, and and of course realizing. Um, that happiness is only real when shared at the end. Right. Yeah. And what, I mean, with <laughs> someone like Catherine Keener and, and even Vaughn too, I mean, as he's aged, he's gotten harder and softer at the same time. It's just yeah. something that's gone on with his, like the face and the eyes are like, changing shape, but Keener just carries all of this like empathy and and questioning in her face. She wants to know him better. She wants to know, she wants to understand. And as we flip through all the various faces and, and all the actors, everybody is cast as a listener. Um, and with, with Keener and with Holbrook, I think you get this, the real sense that these people are trying to figure out what they can say that will help. And it's never direct enough, right? Holbrook comes out and says, I can adopt you. You can be here, you can be safe and you can stay here with me. But it's after a long, convoluted conversation where they're circling each other and they're not really able to say what they need. And McCandless is never able to, to I mean, he, know, he can say what he wants, but he can't articulate anything beyond Alaska will solve everything. And it's just so, it's just so sad to watch this. It's so sad to watch this waste of a life. Yeah. And have everyone else, because it's the kind of thing where in the investigation, I mean, Krakauer, he doesn't, I don't know that he ever actually says it in the book, but I came away from the book feeling like everyone could see this coming. Yeah. Every single person knew that if he got there, he wouldn't make it because yeah. he just wasn't prepared. He had this, uh, you know, the Alexander Supertramp persona. He has this idealized, uh, hippie is the wrong term, but there is a sort of crunchy grass fed ideology that he's invoking that isn't going to save him. And he just, he just doesn't know what he's doing. He just knows what he wants to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've met people like that. And it's always about, you know, starting a business or breaking into something. And, and it's never about, I'm going to take myself away from the world and live off the fat of the land perfectly well and not ever get dysentery or hepatitis. Because, you know, I'd be dead in the first six hours. I know this about myself and I'm fine with it. Exactly. But it is such a, it's a commitment of his own life to his own death. Yeah. And everyone else can see it. Yeah. They can see it while also um, receiving gifts from him, but mm. receiving emotional gifts from him. And that's the other turn that I find so fascinating is that, is that it's, it's, it's multi-directional, these relationships, right? How Holbrook gets something from this relationship. Catherine Keener, when she reaches over and grabs his chin and says, do your folks know where you are? Yeah. There's so much in that, given her backstory in the film and, and her, you know, obviously her relationship with, with her, you know, partner um, is improved by the mere touch of this magical creature, right? This mere entrance into their lives. So that, that relational um, aspect to me really fed uh, Chris and, and it improved on reality, perhaps around the effect he had on other people, which is also part of what you were saying earlier in terms of the sympathetic portrayal, because if someone can be so loving and so generous 
in his not actively generous, but just by being himself touch others and create an emotional reaction in them. Um, why does that life need to end that way? And, you know, it's, it, it adds to the sadness of it is that he is giving to the world just by being his egocentric, uh, you know, um, self-destructive self. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it comes back to the religious metaphor, right? Because there is a messianic attitude right. to, to Chris, not to anyone else. They get to be his disciples after the fact. Yes. Um, and, and in a way, I suppose they do spread his gospel by talking to Krakauer and thus, and thus to Penn and to make the movie, but mm-hmm. it's, I just don't know what his teachings are. Right. I mean, yeah. nobody seems to have a beat on what it is that he believes other than that he can't be around people anymore and has to leave. Yeah. And that's especially, I mean, this is the first time I've watched it since the pandemic. And and after two years of isolation and not seeing family members and friends and, and talking only abstractly or, or over Zoom or, or phone calls, um, we we very clearly need people. We don't need everybody. I, I've, I've also <laughs> discovered who it is I don't need to hang around with anymore. But um yeah, it plays so differently now. A story about self-imposed isolation after yeah. all of this. Maybe that's why it just landed so hard this time. No, absolutely, absolutely. And I think, yeah, and I think the tragedy as that unfolds is this mere fact that even though you know the, the, what what he's giving to these people just by being in their lives, at least as portrayed by Penn, mm. um, and that the ultimate irony and tragedy is he seems to realize this in this moment of rapture at the end with his death to me is a, a fable actually, you know, really when, when you, when you look at it now from our perspective, seeing the film in this pandemic time resonates completely differently um, as you're saying, you know, and um, yeah. Yeah. How often have you revisited it? Is it a. I've seen it probably four or five times, maybe more, but um, recently it's interesting. I started to watch it again. Um, And like I said, I had watched it with my son who's just starting to be able to be old enough to watch movies that I have loved um, that are a little bit more adults. And so, you know, just starting to sort of introduce certain things to him and introducing this was a mind blowing experience because of his own reaction to this boy who's not much older than him, um, who makes these decisions and, um, and the reaction at his death was, was hard actually. I mean, I I haven't seen my son have a reaction like that to a film in a long time. I mean, he buried his head in the sofa and started crying and, uh, you know, I sort of shut it off because I realized, Oh, I've, you know, (laughs) we've gone too far, but he just, um, he just felt something very, very strong. Um, and I think in part because he w- was watching this, this figure who he somehow related to, you know, I mean, my, my son's a big uh, naturalist, you know, he wants to save the planet and um, believes in, in all, all of the, the superficially, these things living on the land. Right. But to see how far it was taken and the rejection of other things. And of course, you know, the hubris and how it all ends was just so much for him. So, but we had this really powerful talk after about human relationships and he says, you know, why couldn't he understand what he understood at the end earlier? You know, that that was his child, his child's question was why did it take all of that for him to understand that actually 
happiness is only real when shared. And um, yeah, so all that to say after that experience, you know, I've started to look at it differently and, 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 you know, even recently um, watching it, um, you know, William Hurt having recently passed and his performance in this film, like how he portrayed this incredibly flawed father, um, that incredible moment on the pavement when he, this, the pinnacle of their grief when the mother is um, longing to set a fourth place at the dinner table after two years of him being gone. And the father is out and falls on the ground, pulls up his pants and reveals he doesn't have any socks on because he's longing for the boy he lost and the boy he was. Um, so watching those performances now, I'm getting something different out of it as a parent. I'm watching it as a parent. Sure. Whereas when I first saw it, I was not yet a parent. I was growing one, but didn't know it (laughs) (laughs) and related and was, and had just come off a um, backpacking trip in in Ethiopia and had lived uh, on very little at the time, had lived quite an ascetic life for a while and had just come back to the city and was paying $4 for a latte. And so I was incensed by this, right. Incensed by this idea that uh, the privilege that I had in life and seeing Chris reject all that, I related to him. I was applauding him for it, right? And now of course. all these years later, seeing it differently. So I've seen it, yeah, four or five times um, over time and have always gotten something different from it. I'm just trying to figure out how this leads to, to the documentary series. And I'm not totally sure. Ordinarily, I would close by asking you if there's a connection, but yeah. we're, not, we're not, we don't feel, it doesn't feel like we're there yet. So I don't know. Um, they're well, they're both stories of people who obviously didn't need to die. Yeah. But but beyond that, and that's a terrible no. comparison. No, 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 absolutely. Well, no, I mean, may, maybe there is a connection, sort of through Phil. You know, um, you know, well, just through the 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 characters, I mean, that, you know, Chris that we're talking about and Phil Demers, who has odd parallels to this idea of, uh, you know, a martyrdom and a quest that can't quite be explained and, you know, not not being able to fully access what it is that he wants when he wants the walrus, um, you know, and, and then through, uh, you know, and, and another eccentric character, and then through to you know Al Smith, who has had his own sort of eccentric path, and 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 a story as well that has so many um, nuances and holes in it. I mean, it does um, kind of work. They are both on missions that they can't articulate to anyone else, right? Yeah. That no one else can understand. No, exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. And and uh, and definitely um, uh, self destruction you know, of, of, uh, of, of, let's say, uh, you know, this difficult man story, you know, it's, it's sort of like, I don't know. I just think there's, um, uh, and they're all really, I mean, all, all of these things and like, like many, many good, um, you know, films and stories are very complicated and difficult to encapsulate and properly tie up, you know, and I think that the story of Beverly Smith and what happened to her is a tragic example of there never being neat resolution, you know, yeah. And it's an unknowable event in the same way, I guess. Yeah, as, as no, it, it is death. actually, it is unfortunately an unknowable event because even if you are convinced that you, 
um, believe you know who did it, you know, as, as the family is, uh, the physical evidence isn't there, um, certainly not an, enough to convict him in a court of law. So it is unknowable and it's, it's a grief and a tragedy that's, that's unknowable. Um, like Chris's tragedy and in some ways, even Phil's, even though it's not, not a tragedy in the same sense, but it is, uh, mired in complications and volatility and, and self-destruction, you know, as well. well he's lost so much is, is yeah. the thing I keep coming back to about Phil is that yeah. he's done the thing he wanted to do, but it's taken everything from him. Yeah. It's taken a lot and it has, but it, in, you know, I think in his mind, he's also gained from it. You know, he's gained a certain stature on social media and for him, that means something. Um, and, and he's gained a platform, you know, for him to advocate for the things he wants to advocate for. Um, but, but you're right that there is um, in the balance of things, perhaps more loss. Um, and um but what he's been able to keep, I suppose, at the end of the day is his convictions. And maybe you could say the same about Chris McCandless is his convictions, um, you know, and uh, this, this, despite all the odds and, you know, uh, this drive, this quest that is, uh, you know, difficult to understand and, um loathsome in some ways and, and admirable at the same time um has this this tragic kind of end and i mean you know phil's ending is unknown but um but i think these complicated characters i'm very drawn to um that's for sure and i think i think being able to portray them in ways where you don't think where you, you don't always have to know the answers you know i had a great conversation with someone recently about the series um where uh, it, that it is okay to frustrate viewers. It is okay not to give them all of the answers so that they can come up with their own, but that also it stays with them and it evolves over time. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely the, the, the sort of the landscape of the true crime documentary has ever since serial really trended more towards that. Um, the idea that it's okay not to know, well, not that it's okay not to know everything, but the idea that ending on a question mark is acceptable, I guess. I mean, it goes as far back as the thin red line, right. With, with Aaron mm-hmm. Morris, but he carved out an alternate theory. That's pretty convincing. And then events overtook the movie. But when it's something like this, where you're just staring into a decades old abyss of, of cold cases, we want the solution, but, you know, like narratively we've, we're all trained to expect a solution. And then in the last few years, it's just sort of mushroomed into all of this, this cultural acknowledgement that you can't know everything, that we can't solve everything. And you can, again, you can see who's dealing with that well and who isn't handling it so well. Absolutely. But it also, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds trite, but I mean, it's a reflection of real life, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, it is you know, the, I, I think it is actually turning the you know tropes on their head in the sense because we can't possibly and will never know everything that we need to know in our real lives and so I I think treating stories with the same kind of respect for for that real life um certainly in documentary is not necessarily a bad thing I guess I'm not surprised that there's no clear resolution coming but well, the title kind of gives it away. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but I think, again, that's fine. Um, there is a lot of, 
Yeah, no, totally. But there is a lot of, uh, I mean, I, I don't know, again, I think with, with, um, with uh, Into the Wild, um, with my Walrus and the Whistleblower film and many, many other um, films that um, I've seen and the series, you learn as much as you unlearn. And I love that. You know, I just, I, I just find as a viewer, I love that. And so as a creator, I look, I don't always tell stories that have, that don't have any resolutions. Sometimes I can tie things up. Um, but I, 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 I find open endings and those nuances are very rewarding as a filmmaker. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you say, that's how most of us just exist. That's how life goes. That's how life goes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. My thanks to Natalie Bibo whose new documentary series, The Unsolved Murder of Beverly Lynn Smith, is now streaming on Prime Video. You can also find The Walrus and the Whistleblower on CBC Gem in Canada. Check them out. You can find Natalie on Twitter at NatBibo, N-A-T-B-I-B-E-A-U, and you can find Into the Wild on Blu-ray and DVD from Paramount Home Entertainment. I still have the HD DVD. It's also streaming on Netflix in the U.S. and available to rent or buy on most VOD platforms in North America. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. And the first year of this podcast is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 46 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And I remind you, my brand new weekly newsletter, Shiny Things, is there for subscribing at shiny-things.ghost.io. As for this podcast, our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next time.